Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Lost in Science Summer Series. It's our first Summer Series episode for 2023. Now, in the summer, we like to take it a bit easy and, for your pleasure, replay some of our our greatest hits from the previous year. And this week, I thought I would play for you, or replay for you, that is, uh, an interview that we recorded at the start of December last year with the renowned climate scientist Michael Mann from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, Michael Mann, uh, as I said, he's a very well-known climate scientist, perhaps best known for the hockey stick graph that showed the rapid increase in global temperatures in the recent century or so compared to the last few thousand years. Now, when we put this story to air, we had to cut it down a bit to fit into our show format. So I am going to give you a treat and play the full interview. Now, if you listen to our podcast, you probably already heard this full interview. But uh, look, I thought I would update you on a couple of things about it anyway. First thing I should point out, though, is in the interview, and this is something I didn't bring up when I um, spoke to him in December, Michael Mann talks about the concept of ranked choice voting. Now, obviously, this is not a scientific thing, this is a political thing, but it's something that he raises as a possibility for getting, I suppose, better electoral outcomes and better climate policy. Now, in Australia, ranked choice voting is known as preferential voting, and it is our main I guess, method that we use. And yeah, look, whether it gives you less polarised politics or not, I don't know whether that has been scientifically proven, but it has given us some interesting results in the last uh, federal election in Australia, certainly. An election that really showed the extent to which the Australian public does want action on climate change, which is quite different, I guess, to some of the, the messages we have had over the last few decades from our political leaders. So yeah, that's just something I thought I should, a bit of context there that I should point out. Now, I guess the other thing to talk about here is really where we are now, I suppose, coming into 2023 and what has happened in 2022. Now, when I'm speaking here, there has not been an official kind of word put out from the major climate tracking bodies about where 2022 sat in the rankings of the warmest years of all time projections and some of the most um, recent sort of estimates I've seen put it around the fifth or sixth warmest year overall, which doesn't sound like much, but look, it is obviously still pretty high and it's got to be put in the context of that this was a year when we had a La Nina phenomenon. That is uh, when um, the, the wind patterns in the Pacific cause a cooler climate overall, particularly in Australia. And so, yeah, the La Nina years tend to be cooler globally. Uh, and we had a few La Nina's in a row, I should point out. Yeah, for it to still be so high indicates that yeah, we are still on track for a, a long-term trend of warming. 
Of course, this doesn't stop some of the, the other variations that you see uh, in weather in particular. Uh, you might remember there were re recently some record cold temperatures in North America in December 2022, but maybe it hasn't got as much attention here because the pictures aren't spectacular. In the new year, in 2023, Europe has seen record high temperatures. Now, these don't sound very high to us, but when you consider getting like 25 degrees in parts of France, which is basically summer temperatures in the middle of winter, that is uh, something quite unusual. In Australia, of course, we have seen a slightly cooler year in 2023, again due to the La Nina effect, but still enough to cause some bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. Of course, we have also, though, seen pretty much it seems continual rain and flooding. Sydney, in particular, looking at the records for Observatory Hill Station in Sydney. Now, this is a, a weather station that has a mean of 1600 millimeters of rainfall per year this saw over 2500 millimeters of rain um, i think the previous record was around 2200 millimeters so it really smashed that rainfall record uh which is something that obviously was pretty clear through the flooding that was seen last year um, however other countries had a worse pakistan had a particularly bad floods in pakistan between june and october 2022 covered about a third of the country and killed over 1,700 people. Yeah, we shouldn't forget the, the human tragedy that these things can cause as well. But it's not all doom and gloom. Um, there has been some action on climate change gradual in the US. They have a new Inflation Reduction Act, which includes things like $430 billion of action to reduce carbon emissions, which is projected to reduce emissions about 40% by 2030. In China, China is the major emitter in the world. They have certainly seen an increase in their coal use, but in their looking at their long-term energy mix, their renewables are increasing at a much faster rate than fossil fuels, which is a good thing. Australia, of course, we do have a new government with new commitments, but we are also seeing, I guess, some real changes there. I suppose one of the things that we have seen recently is, again, this uptake in renewables. And I think the most notable thing that stood out for me was that in one of the first weeks in December, South Australia basically had over 100% of its energy coming from wind and solar power, which is quite an achievement and a bit of a record uh, for renewable energy here. So look, it is not all bad news, as you'll hear Michael Mann telling you in the interview. There is reason to hope and not give in to what seems like the impending doom of the climate crisis. And Michael Mann, I should point out, is coming to Australia next year, oh, sorry, this year, I, I keep getting that wrong, to talk about these topics. So yeah, look, stay tuned and you'll find out all about it. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Okay, you're listening to Lost in Science, and joining me online today, I have world-renowned climatologist, Professor Michael Mann from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, Professor Mann has previously been the lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
as which he shared part of the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he's perhaps most famous for the hockey stick graph that shows the rapid increase in global temperatures due to human uh, carbon emissions. Now, next year in 2023, he will be touring Australia and New Zealand uh, to talk about the next steps in combating climate change. And yeah, he joins us today to give us a bit of a preview of that. Um, thanks for joining us, Michael. Uh, thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. Now, you've been working in climate a very long time, I'm sure. How did you yourself first become convinced that human-produced carbon emissions were affecting the global climate? Yeah, so I've uh, been at it for a few decades now. Uh, it's hard to believe, but all the way back in uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s, I was doing my PhD uh, originally in physics, and then I decided to actually switch into uh, the Department of Geology and Geophysics at, at Yale University because I was interested in applying the, the physics and math that I had learned to work on sort of a big picture problem. And at the time, one of the big picture problems um, left to solve was modeling Earth's climate system. So it seemed like a, a great physics problem to me. That's how I got into it. And uh, one thing sort of led uh, to another. Uh, eventually, we ended up analyzing uh, what are known as proxy records, uh, like tree rings and corals and ice cores to literally reconstruct uh, the past changes in climate uh, to provide a context for the, the warming that we've seen. And honestly, both my PhD advisor and I at the time were sort of skeptics. Um, back in the late 1980s, uh, the early 1990s, there wasn't yet a clear consensus that the signal the, the, the warming that we were seeing had risen above what we might just consider as sort of the noise, the level of natural variability. Maybe the warming that we had seen was just um, part of some natural oscillation. And so that's sort of how we came at the problem. And it was in part uh, the work uh, that we did um, analyzing these paleoclimate data that led us to the conclusion that the recent warming really is uh, unusual, unprecedented, uh, as far back as we can go. And that, by implication, means that there's probably not a coincidence that the warming coincides with fossil fuel burning, the industrial revolution, the increase in the, in the concentration of so-called greenhouse gases in the atmosphere due to human activity. So you might say that I sort of started out a skeptic and by the mid-1990s, in part uh, because of my own work, but also because of all of the other lines of evidence that were sort of coming um, to the surface, uh, I became convinced, as did my PhD advisor at the time, that human-caused warming was here, that we could indeed now see the signal of human-caused warming of the planet emerging from the noise of natural climate variability. Okay, great. Now that um, resulted in this hockey stick graph we talked about. Now I should just point out that in Australia, we play field hockey more rather than ice hockey and the field hockey stick has kind of a, a curved end. But yeah, the hockey stick graph shows global temperatures pretty constant for over about a thousand years or so and then a sharp uptick in the last century thereabouts. You know, do you think that people accept this these results today or are you still seeing a lot of scepticism? Yeah, and I should mention when I was down in Australia um, a couple of years ago, 
I actually uh, went to a, a, a hockey rink, a, a skating rink in, in Sydney because uh, there was um, a, a team uh, that was sort of uh, recording a, a video about climate change and they wanted to drive home the hockey analogy. So they actually had hockey players out on uh, the, the skating uh, rink um, to sort of reenact a game of hockey <laughs> for uh, Aust- an Australian audience. But you're right. Um, the hockey stick is perhaps a little less familiar um, in the form that we think of it here in the United States down in uh, Australia. But whether you want to call it a field hockey stick or a hockey stick or, uh, frankly, a, a, a sky, um, because if you look at the latest reconstructions that go back even further, there's a much uh, longer handle um, and it's sort of curved, but there is the, the unmistakable blade of mm. the hockey stick, the warming that we've seen over the past century, which is unprecedented as far back as scientists can go now. In the most recent report of the UN uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, um, they presented a much longer hockey stick, um, which is to say that we can now go back further and as far back as we can go now, thousands of years, there is no precedent for the abrupt warming of the past century. And the blade itself has gotten longer because, you know, two decades ago, um, in the late course, 1990s, yeah. it wasn't as warm as it is now. So the blade is getting longer. Uh, the handle has been extended further back. And so it is now the consensus based on dozens of studies that the warming that we're seeing now is unprecedented as far back as we can go that rate of warming has no precedent in the past that we can find. And we know that it can't be explained by say chance, you know, events or natural variability. It's due to fossil fuel burning. It's due to us. I suppose the other side of it is you know, when people have accepted the the reality of climate change, we're seeing now, I guess, a move to I suppose fetus attitudes, you could call it. I mean, we've had the recent COP27 climate conference in Egypt, where the headline achievement was not so much, you know, increased emission reduction or plans to phase out fossil fuel, but like a climate compensation fund, um, basically saying we're causing the damage, we'll just pay for it, we're not going to try and change it. What do you think of this sort of defeatist attitudes? Yeah, you know, it, this was a, a one of the central topics in my my last book, The New Climate War, much of which I actually wrote when I was on sabbatical in Australia during the Black Summer. I happened to be there um, in Sydney to witness that that devastation, and it impacted uh, the you know the way that I wrote, the way that I viewed the climate crisis myself. Mm. It, it really impacted me, and and one of the things that I talked about was you know as denial becomes untenable, and if you were in Australia, you know that summer. You couldn't deny climate change any longer. Uh, even the, the Murdoch media empire in Australia was backing away from their denial because it was just clear to mm. the person on the street that not only is climate change real, but we're seeing the consequences. We were seeing the consequences that summer in the form of unprecedented heat and drought and, and bushfires that blanketed the continent. And so it can't be denied anymore. But, you know, the vested interests, polluters, the fossil fuel industry, they haven't given up. And so they've really shifted their tactics away from denial and towards other, you know, tactics that are still aimed at keeping the status quo, that are still aimed at preventing us from moving away from fossil fuels. And that includes deflection and and division 
Um, but it includes despair mongering and doom mongering. Ironically, if they can convince us it's too late to do anything about the problem, then it potentially leads us down the same path of inaction as, as outright denial. And so this is one of the real obstacles now, doomism, this idea that it's too late to do anything. And you're absolutely right. Uh, there were aspects of the most recent uh, climate conference, uh, conference of the party COP27, as it's called, the UN Climate Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, just uh, weeks ago. There was some disappointment. Now, let's be clear that it was great to actually have, you know, at COP27, an Australian government that at least was working with the rest of the world, that recognizes the importance to uh, to lead on climate. And the Australian climate negotiator, uh, Christopher Bowen, I think uh, is his name, mm-hmm. actually led a, a task force on uh, what was uh, what's known as harm and damage. Um, but um, the fact that a lot of countries, especially uh, the developing world, has already sort of experienced the devastating impacts of climate change. They don't have the infrastructure that we have in the industrial world to sort of protect themselves against the floods and the heat waves and the wildfires and the superstorms. And so they're feeling many of the worst consequences. And so there's this fund, uh, loss and, and damage fund, to help um, developing countries deal with the impacts that they're already suffering through. And Australia, um, Christopher Bowen, the climate negotiator, actually led that effort. And so Australia played a a really important role with that. But you're right, it's sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because the more concessions we make that we need to sort of adapt to the harm and suffering that we're experiencing, there's the possibility that that distracts from the greater task, which is to prevent additional harm. Uh, and there's no question we need to adapt to those impacts that are now unavoidable, but we have to prevent those impacts that are still preventable. Because if we continue with business as usual, uh, burning of fossil fuels and warming up the planet, we will exceed our adaptive capacity. Australians understand that um, increasingly that continent with the floods and the, and the wildfires, um, we can imagine an unlivable world where extreme weather events make it uninsurable to, to build a home in large parts of the country. Um, so we have to recognize that, yes, it's important to instill resilience, um, to adapt to the impacts we're already feeling, and especially to help you know, the the developing world, the global South, who had the least role in creating the problem and are suffering the greatest consequences to provide resources to them to deal with that. That's all important. And that was one of the breakthroughs at COP27. But the breakthrough we didn't see was a ratcheting up of the commitments by the United States, by Australia and all the other countries, our commitments to decarbonize our economies, to move more rapidly away from fossil fuel burning. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. We're talking to climatologist Michael Mann about climate science and policy. You talked about coming over here during the the Black Summer bushfires. Now, this year, we, of course, have seen record floods, like constant floods in some parts of the country, it feels like. How do people reconcile these two, like seemingly opposite effects of climate change? Yeah, you know, there's actually a sequence that I show in my standard climate change public lecture from Australia, from New South Wales, in fact, because it's the contrast between the devastating wildfires that we saw during the Black Summer and then, you know, a year and a half later, um, the devastating floods. Uh, you probably have seen that that video of a house floating down a river, just sort of remarkable fluctuations from one extreme to the next. And the critics will say, well, you know, you climate scientists, you can't make up your mind. Which is it? Is it the heat and the drought and the wildfires or is it the floods? The answer is it's both. We actually expect greater extremes at both ends of the hydrological uh, spectrum for a basic reason. You know, when it's hotter and drier, you get worse drought and summers in general are getting hotter and drier. So you get the worst droughts and, and, and the heat combines, you know, with that drought and you get the bushfires. But it, when you get those winter rains, and in California, we will still get those winter rains, even though we have devastating wildfires in the summer. In Australia, we will still get those winter rains. And when those winter rains come, so when the conditions in the atmosphere are conducive to getting rainfall, you get more of it because the atmosphere is warmer. It can hold more moisture. So if you get that sort of upward motion mm. that allows you to produce rainfall, you're going to get more of it. So a warmer atmosphere, when it is raining, produces more rainfall, more of those flooding rains. And so there isn't a contradiction. It's actually the same basic physics that describes the profound droughts that we see in summer and the extreme flooding uh, that we see in, in winter in many of those same regions. That's great. Yeah. Um, as a physicist myself, I like to hear it attributed to basic physics. <laughs> yeah, no, we have that in common. And anytime you can bring it, you know, back to basic physics, you feel like you're on a on a more fundamental footing. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, you talked about the new attitude from the Australian government, but then as you pointed out, we're not necessarily seeing that translate into the concrete actions, I suppose, that many people had hoped for. So I know we've got limited time here. What do you see as the main things that need to be done, um, the main actions that the, the world needs to take? Yeah, well, let's just say, you know, if uh, if the baseline for comparison is, uh, you know, Scott Morrison and the coalition government, then <laughs> almost anything is going to look like a move in the right direction on climate. But let's give, you know, the, the Albanese government some credit and parliament as well that has passed, you know, a, a pretty substantial climate legislation to uh, lower carbon emissions by 43% by 2030. That's a substantial commitment. And, and so Australians can sort of not do a victory lap, but take some solace from the fact that there is some meaningful progress, but it's one thing to state a goal like that, that we're going to reduce carbon emissions 43%, you know, in eight years. It's something else to actually follow through and do it. And so we need to see policies now that will actually implement, you know, incentives for renewable energy, de-incentivizing fossil fuel energy, not providing support for additional fossil fuel infrastructure, not continuing to fund 
fossil fuel extraction in other countries. These are things that, for example, Australia hasn't committed to and the United States hasn't committed to. And we need to see them happen if we're going to make good on these commitments that we are making. That is uh, some excellent points. What about individuals? You know, I know that basically it's the responsibility of the big polluters and governments, but for individuals, is mostly at the ballot box that we have the power to do anything or is there any other actions that we can take? Yeah, you know, um, that's where I think that we in the United States have something to learn from Australia. Some months ago, I actually uh, co-authored a commentary with former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in The Guardian about that monumental uh, election in Australia, the teal independence that rose to the fore and where we saw, you know, a coalition of labor and independence win back the government and win back the government on a climate agenda. I mean, that election was a referendum Mm. on climate. And despite all of the misinformation promoted by, you know, the Murdoch media in Australia, and I witnessed that when I was down under, um, there's so much misinformation being put out there by them. But the Australian people were remarkably resilient to that disinformation campaign that was being waged against them. And, And they did vote for climate forward government. And one of the lessons that I think we can take away um, here in the United States is how important it is to have what we call ranked choice voting, where you can indicate a, a preference for you know a first and, and, and second place candidate. And, and through the ranked choice algorithm, <laughs> the, the ranked choice um, approach to voting, it's possible to elect centrists. Um, mm. you, you get a less polarized electorate than you get, for example, the United States, where we where we lack overall uh, ranked choice voting. Although there are certain states like Alaska and Maine in the U.S. where we have ranked choice voting now. And what you see is a tendency for voters to elect centrists who can reach across the aisle, as we say, that can find common ground and pass common sense legislation. And so I think that was a critical thing in Australia that allowed those teal independents in particular um, to win a number of uh, critical seats and and provide that majority support for climate action that uh, we now have in, in the Australian government. That's sort of what we need to try to emulate here in the United States. And I, I think that there will be a move towards ranked choice uh, voting. And and I hope, you know, that we will give our friends down under uh, credit for having uh, inspired us to move in that direction. Yeah, that is, um, I guess, a a promising way to look at it. Look, I could ask you many, many more questions, but we're out of time. Um, But fortunately, as I said, you are coming to Australia and New Zealand next year to to discuss a lot of these ideas and what can be done about climate change. I believe it is May and June you will be touring New Zealand and Australia. Tickets on sale at thinkinc.org.au. That's T-H-I-N-K-I-N-C.org.au. And yeah, look, we hope to see you again here and hear more from you. Uh, Thanks so much, Chris. I'll tell you, uh, Australia now is really a second home to me. Uh, I made so many uh, good friends down there and I just sort of feel like, um, you know, I'm part Australian now. I can't wait uh, to get back there and, and to see folks again and to be part of that conversation that we started uh, really during the Black Summer when I was first down there. Yeah, well, we look forward to seeing you too. Thanks for joining us, uh, Professor Michael Mann. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. And 
that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now. We're at the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.